Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. Anytime you're in Huntsville, we hope you'll come be part of our worship. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. We hope you'll enjoy this lesson brought to us by Glenn Colley. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. If you want an outline of the sermon for this morning, open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9 that Lewis just read. Isaiah the ninth chapter, and in particular, verse 6. And may I tell you how happy I am to see you here. And Paul's right. We have a lot of folks who are visiting. That's very comforting because we have a large number of young families in this church, and many of them have traveled away and We're so glad that you're sitting in their pews today. You're at a place today where you will always be welcome. Now, let me say something while you're going to our passage uh, about tonight's service. It's going to be at 5 o'clock just like always, but tonight the sermon's going to be a little different. What I want to do is to preach from John chapter 6 in two halves. It's not going to take a long time. It it won't be long, but I want to talk to the children first and, and tell them the story the Bible narrative of the boy who had five loaves and two fishes, and from that Jesus fed 5,000 men. And so I'm going to tell them that story. We're going to talk about that. And the children, moms, I want the children to sit down here, and we're going to put that staircase that we have, that short oak staircase that we pull up here for weddings. We're going to turn it around backwards. And so if you'll just bring them up, and um, be all right with me if we had some teenagers too. Anyway, I'm going to talk about that, and then we'll turn it to the adults, and I'll make application uh, on a more adult level. And that's what we're going to do tonight. So I hope you come back and be part of that. When I was a young preacher, I made up my mind that, that I wasn't going to avoid talking about the birth of Jesus in December. Now, that won't seem strange to perhaps many of you, but it's, it's a little strange because I, I always make a point to observe that we do not know when Jesus was born. Anybody who says he knows is just mistaken. He hasn't studied it. The Bible doesn't tell us, which I think, as I mentioned last week, is just very ironic because God, who sees the future, could see what we have done with the birthday of Jesus. And isn't it ironic that knowing that, that God still withheld the date from us? He had, it, I don't know any conclusion to draw except that he didn't, he didn't want us to know. And that's not what he wanted us to emphasize. I have a good friend who this week said to me, now, Glenn, you know, we have a tradition in our family of making a little cake, and we sing happy birthday to Jesus. Our family gets around and sing happy birthday to Jesus. Do you do that? No, no, I, I don't do that. Now, having said that, the decision I made when I was a young preacher is that I just don't see any point of, of Christians and others 
hearing these passages of Scripture about the birth of Jesus and that somehow it would be a benefit for us to avoid them. I think we ought to talk about them. And so that's what I want to do with that bit of a disclaimer. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, listen closely, is in my opinion the most beautiful description of Jesus in the Bible. It's ironic that it would be in the Old Testament, but that's where it is. I I don't know how you could have a more sentimental, more beautiful, you, you have more academic kinds of descriptions of him about salvation. And we love those. But when you talk about getting to people's hearts, ladies and gentlemen, the description of Jesus in this passage this morning that we're going to be talking about, Isaiah 9 and 6, I just think it's the one. I want you to memorize it. I want, there are just five names given to him. Now, I I think it would be good as we eat the Lord's Supper. What do you think about during the Lord's Supper? And I suppose you're like me. I I always go through, every time I eat the Lord's Supper, I go through the upper room and what he said to his disciples and the departure of Judas. And I think about, about leaving there and going across the Kidron Valley up to the, to, uh, the, the Mount of Olives. And I, I play all that out in my mind. But I would suggest to you that a great thing to do while you're eating the Lord's Supper is to recite in your mind the five names of Jesus and Isaiah chapter 9. Recite them in your mind. Wonderful. Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, there was a time, and I suppose sometimes still is, when people, mamas would name their babies according to, to qualities. They wanted them to be something. And, and I, with that in mind, I, uh, I looked up our elders' names. You can do this, you know. You can look up their names and say, this is what this name means, or that this is the etymology, the history behind this name. And it's kind of interesting I thought you might know your elders a little bit better if you knew what their names meant. Tony's name means priceless, Betty. That's pretty good. I said that first because he came out on top of the heap there. That was good. Alan, Alan's name means handsome and cheerful. Right, there you go. Glenn's name, which happens to be the same as mine, Glenn's name means born on Thursday, I think. I, it's, um, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That's, that's not right. Glenn's name means Serene Valley. Now, I wasn't named that because my mother, I'm going to tell you about Lewis in a minute. I'm just holding off because I'm just so embarrassed about it. But uh, uh, my, I was named that after my father. I'm a junior. And my father had the same name as me. And he was named by my grandfather after R.V. Glenn Freed, who was the co-founder of Freed Hardeman University. Glenn came from Freed. So there was a connection there. Uh, Lewis, Lewis means uh, prominent warrior. Okay, you can make what you want to of that. But the, point, the point I'm going to make, and I'm just playing with you about the, the elders, but the point I'm going to make is that if a mother named her child... A, a name that represents a quality, a qualification, or, or a, a characteristic. It would be not because she knew that that child would grow up to be that, but because she hoped the child would be that. And that's why Paul Owen was named Paul. I'm confident that his faithful Christian parents named him Paul because they wanted to, I don't know, plant a seed in his mind that he should be like the Apostle Paul. And I think he is. But that's not, that's not, about, that's not what you've got in Isaiah chapter 9. These are the names of Jesus, but not from a father that hopes he turns out like this. It's 700 years. It's seven centuries before the birth of Jesus on this earth. 
It wasn't because God would hope that it would be wonderful and counselor and mighty God and everlasting father and the prince of peace. It wasn't because he was hoping he would be like that. It was because in his divine omniscience, God knew that he would be this. And he's not looking forward to that. He's looking back at it, as it were, as God has this panoramic view of of all time. And, And he says, this is him. Let me describe him to you. The context briefly is this, and I I hope, if I have time, I want to read from Matthew 4 at the end of this sermon to give you the context in in a biblical way. So you have the first five verses of Isaiah chapter 9, and it describes the point of giving these names of Jesus, these descriptions of Jesus. The easier way to read it, though, and is in its fulfillment in Matthew chapter 4, verse 12 through 18. And if you have a paper Bible, I would encourage you at Isaiah 9, verse 5 verses, to just write in the margin, Matthew 4, 12 through 18. Because every time you read this, you need to go back to Matthew 4 and look at the fulfillment. The fulfillment is in the context of Jesus preaching in Galilee. That is around the Sea of Galilee and Capernaum and all those, those towns there where Jesus had his ministry and, and Matthew 4 is the launching of his ministry. And, and so Matthew quotes Isaiah chapter 9. That's our text today. He quotes it. And he does it in a way that to, is loosely quoted. But it's obviously that he's talking about this passage. What happened is that the Assyrians came in. You know, they took the, the Jews away. And now you have this, this uh, many of the Jews that aren't full-blooded Jews uh, that populate that area when Jesus has his ministry. And yet Gentiles... Too. So you have Gentiles and Jews and some that are some of both. And the people who are some of both, this mongrel race that they have, if you please, uh, care, cares not a great deal about the law of God, the law of Moses. They don't know a lot about that. And the, the, the disciples of Jesus felt like, Acts chapter 1, that when Jesus came, he would deliver, as in a military way, he would deliver the Israelites from the Gentiles, and especially the Romans, who were on their native soil, and they bitterly resented that. (laughs) That, That's not what this passage is about. That's what they had hoped about Jesus. But now here's this prophecy that the Messiah is going to come, and and before he says, wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, before he says those things, he describes that he's coming. And he's also, I mean, he's not just for the Jews, he's for the Gentiles too. This is wonderful because you're a Gentile probably. I don't know anybody in here that, that would say I'm a Jew. We're Gentiles. And, and listen, the gospel was for all people. That's the context, all right? The context of the names of Jesus here is, uh, is that, that Jesus was coming. The Messiah would come at 700 years before it's going to happen, seven centuries. But, but when it does, let me tell you what he's going to be like. And this is full of encouragement and joy, and, and it's just wonderful. I would add one more thing. When you, when you talk about Christmas time and you, you talk about the birth and people, people really like to keep Jesus as a baby, I think. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. We're going to talk about that in a minute because he's the prince of peace. But you've got to let him grow up. Oh, you've got to let him grow up. This, this text starts out, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Obviously, he's talking about Jesus. And then he gives these names, but the names are not about a baby. You hear me? They're not about the baby. They're about a grown man. Got to let him grow up. There's a temptation when we study about the birth of Jesus to try to freeze him like that, and we just we think we can live any way we please. Religion can go any direction it wants to because Jesus is just about peace and he's about love and comfort. And and let me tell you something: Jesus came to teach us, and not all of it's easy. 
Some of it's very hard. And Christianity is not something you just happen to fall into and happen to live. It, it's about dedication and commitment and sometimes sacrifice. It is, it is not easy. So follow me. Let's go to the five names. Number one, he's wonderful. What, wonderful means what you think it means. I don't have any special definition for that. I just, that's not my goal because you already know what it means. But, but my goal is that, is that you would take a deliberate process in your mind to apply this to Jesus. I think when you eat the Lord's Supper, it's a great time to do that, that he's wonderful. Now, let me ask you a question. When do you remember times in your life when you felt this emotion of wonder? Wonder means amazement, a sense of awe. I'm careful about how I use the word awesome because you just don't want to flitter that about. It ought to be reserved for things that are truly awesome. And the word wonderful is applied here to Jesus. Talked to a friend the other day who said that his family wanted him to go to the Grand Canyon. And he thought, going to spend a lot of money. Going to take a lot of time. Going to go to the Grand Canyon, big hole in the ground. Really? And he said, but when I got there, it was It was wonderful. When have you felt that? Tell me now, when have you felt that? You hold your new baby, brand new baby. That's wonderful. Isn't it wonderful? There, there, I think everybody ought to, ought to go to the ocean occasionally. This is how Glenn feels. I just feel that everybody ought to make a trip to the ocean sometimes and, and go there at dawn and watch the sunrise on the ocean and the vastness of it. The creation of God. And one of the words that you're going to use when you do that, when you elbow your wife and say, look at that, you're going to use the word wonderful. Now, that's the name of Jesus. Let me give you some biblical things. Here's uh, Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 18. You're familiar with this. There are three things which are too wonderful for me, four which I do not understand. And he's pondering this, and it's just, these are things amazing to him. The way of an eagle in the air the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship in the midst of the sea, the way of a man with a virgin. Wonderful. And you may find it interesting that in Judges chapter 13, you have Manoah. Manoah is Samson's daddy. And this is, Samson is going to be born and an angel of the Lord. I believe it's a pre, an example of the pre-incarnate Christ. The angel comes and talks to his wife, Mrs. Manoah. You're going to have a baby and here's how it's going to be and here's what I want you to do. She goes and tells her husband and he says, find him. I want to see this angel. And so he has an encounter with the angel. And, and one of the things he says, and this is kind of interesting, I wouldn't have thought of this, but he says, what's your name? Tell me your name. Why do you want to know my name? Seeing that it's wonderful. Now you just let the, the synapses jump right now for me in your mind, right? Those, because connect the dots is that what's his name? Isaiah nine, his name is wonderful. And that's how it was quoted there in Judges chapter 13 too. Sometimes you have, in the New Testament, you have the word wonder applied to a miracle, Acts chapter 2 and verse 22, and you remember the works of Jesus that Peter talked about there. But it's not always a miracle. And when I think about Jesus, think about how much God so loved the world In John 3 and 16, in Luke 2, you think about the birth and all the things that transpired in this miraculous conception. And now you have the Son of God. I've seen God because I've seen Jesus through the Scriptures. What's the word you would attach to that? 
You think about his teachings. You think about the love of Jesus. You, you, you think about ultimately his crucifixion, the kind of suffering. Isaiah chapter 53. And you think about Acts 1 and the ascension of Jesus. And the angel, why are you looking up into heaven? He's coming back in the same way that he came. He's coming back. What's the word you attach to that? Ready? Wonderful. It is simply wonderful. There is a name I love to hear. I love to sing its worth. It sounds like music in my ear. What is he, what's that? What is that lyric? What does that mean? It's just wonderful. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's just something about that name. Number two, counselor. Now, just, just to, for your mind, just to think about, I'm not going to make a big deal out of this because I don't think it's big, but some translations put a comma here, wonderful counselor, comma in between. Other translations don't, which is, that's a little different, is to say that, that maybe it means wonderful counselor or perhaps wonderful as a standalone. I've done some research on this and I, I can't prove it. I just don't see any reason. There's no logical reason to put a comma there. You don't have to put a comma there. So I don't, I, and I'm not presenting it that way. He's wonderful. That's a standalone name. Counselor. Now, you know what a counselor is, and perhaps sometime in your life, you've sought some advice from somebody. I hope in your life, I hope you have godly people who, with whom you're close and to whom you can confide things that on, on which you need some, some counsel. And, and we're blessed in this church to have two trained counselors who are available to, to our members and others, and they just do a terrific job. There are three things that a counselor, uh, three objectives that a counselor has when he or she counsels with people. Comfort, direction, and healing. I want to spend a few minutes as we talk about Jesus being a counselor. One of his names is counselor. I, I want to go to John chapter 4 and verse 13 beginning. And here, here is Jesus talking to the woman at the well. It, it's a beautiful example of Jesus being a counselor. I just want to apply this grid to that, which is that what he's going to do is give, give comfort and direction and healing and I think you can find that in that order in this. So this is a woman of Samaria and at a well, and he talks to her. And she's a little bit surprised because Jews don't typically talk to people of Samaria. And, and so here's what he says. If you knew who it was that asked you a drink, you'd have asked him, him and he'd have given you living water. Now, I don't know about you, but that gives me great comfort. I, there, there's comfort in that. I, uh, if I talk to somebody about difficulties in my life, I, I really want some comfort. I don't want somebody that's hard and cold. I want somebody who's encouraging to me. Of course you do. You want that comfort. And that's what Jesus offers. Here's what he says. I, I could give you living water. And she says, I want it. Sir, give me this water. I want it. But that isn't all. Then there's direction. Only Jesus is different from any earthly counselor. He's not the same. And here's a big, big reason. It's because whenever you counsel with people, I mean, as a preacher, an elder, or a Christian, whatever, you, you sit down and they say, I've got trouble. You, you don't say, well, let me tell you what your troubles are. You, what you say is, you tell me your troubles. Tell me what's happening. And the first thing in marriage counseling, what you do is you sit down with a couple and you say, tell me what's going on. 
Give me, give me the picture because eh, you're human and you don't know. You don't know unless they tell you. And very often in counseling, what I, and I suppose I, I do as much counseling as most average preachers, but, but uh, very often I will make this statement. Often I make this statement. I do it deliberately. At the conclusion of all that's been said, I'll say now, I'll, I'll give you my opinion. Here's my judgment on this. But I want you to know it's based solely on what you've just told me. Because what they tell me may not be accurate. Is that a true statement? It may not be the truth. I don't, I don't know. Just based on what you've told me. That, but see, Jesus has no such handicap. That's a human handicap. And what Jesus says in diagnosing this is to laser in. I mean, just, he says, you don't have a husband. You, you've had five. And the one you're living with now is not your husband. I don't know if that takes your breath away. It takes mine away. I've never done that. I've never done that in counseling. You can't do that because you don't know. You don't know everything. He knew everything. He didn't dilly-dally. He gives her comfort. Then he gives her direction. I would, I would parenthetically note that when you get to the end of this, the thing that she points out when she heads into the town and she's going to tell everybody, isn't this the Christ? What do you think? What she points to is this point, is, is that he told, me, he told me everything ever I did. He knows me. You want to know what kind of counselor he is? He's wonderful. He, there's no counselor like him. And then there's the healing, and what he does is to take her to God, because ultimately that's where counseling has to go. It has to go to God. If you counsel people and make them feel better about their troubles without pointing them to God... You've only given them a more comfortable place from which to go to hell. It's, it's no good. You've got to help them connect to God and obtain forgiveness so that they can go to heaven. And that's the long term. And here's what Jesus, let me tell you about worship. Let me tell you about worshiping Jesus in spirit, or worshiping God in spirit and in truth. He's, he's wonderful. And he's counselor. Now, I want you to hold all that in your mind that, that we've just discussed. Hold it on your mind. And then I want you to recite in your mind with me, Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. I'm meek, I'm lowly in heart. You'll find rest under your souls because my yoke is easy, my burden is light. He's, he's the counselor. He is the chief counselor. Nobody's like him. Nobody's like him. I guess the kids were right when they wore those bracelets that said, what would Jesus do? I suppose you and I should say, what would he say about this? And then we should follow him. Three, mighty God. Now, that doesn't give you probably any pause to refer to Jesus as God because you have familiarity with Scripture. But some people, you know, they trip up about this. It, it just throws them for a loop. And in fact, the Jehovah's Witnesses will simply deny it. He's not heaven's deity. He wasn't physically raised from the dead. Oh, no, he, he was good. He was important and all of that, but he just wasn't God. Here's John chapter 1 and verse 1 from the Jehovah's Witness translation, the NWT. In the beginning, so they had to, re, they had to fix the Bible to, to adjust it to be with their, their blasphemy. In the beginning, the word was... And the word was with God, and the word was a God. It's hard for me to read it because it's just wrong. It's just heresy. But you see that little G? Imagine putting the, a little G beside Jesus. 
Let me tell you something from old. Here's 700 years in prophecy. There's no question about this being Jesus. Of course it is. And it says he is the mighty God. When you look at Jesus, you're looking at God the Father. Here's John chapter 14. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's what Jesus said to him. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Look at me and you've seen the Father. In Colossians 1.15, the Bible says he is the image of the invisible God. In John chapter 1 and verse 1 through 3, and you're familiar with this, the Word was with God. Are you ready? And the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him nothing was made that was made. That is to say, he cannot be a created being because he created everything that was created. And unless he created himself, which of course is absurdity, he is eternal. He is God. Romans 9 and verse 3, that Christ came, he is over all, he is the eternally blessed God. 1 John 5, 20, this is the true and eternal God. And perhaps my favorite is 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. And the Bible says this, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. Number four, everlasting father. It's funny, when, when, you, when you first read this, it may give you some confusion. It may trip you up. And when you understand it, it may make you cry. He's our everlasting father. Now, the problem, our consternation comes to when we look at that and we say, oh, come on, come on, come on. The, the Godhead, the Trinity, the first person in the Godhead is God the Father. But Jesus isn't that. He's God the Son. And so how, how is it that the word Father is applicable to him? This is confusing. Well, it is until you realize that this has nothing to do with the Trinity. It has nothing to do with, with the three persons of the Trinity. Nothing at all to do with that. Because that, that would just be strange. That's not what he's talking about. The Hebrew people would, would often use the word Father and, and have nothing to do with this. And that, that's how you get this thing figured out. Think about how the Hebrews would use the word Father. John chapter 8 and verse 39 He's, an, he's like an ancestor. That's how the Jews would use it. We have Abraham to our father. Abraham's our father. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't their dad. It was just somebody that, was, that they were descended from, somebody. So they would use it like that sometimes. And sometimes as a matter of influence. And you love 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse 12. And Elijah is taken up into heaven in a chariot of fire. Elisha, his successor, is watching this happen. And he cries out, Father. Father, the chariot of Israel. He's talking about Elijah. And he learned from him. He trained from him. And he re- in that influence uh, stage, that influence level, that's what he's talking about when he refers to him as father. The Hebrews used the word in different ways. Now, there's three ways to see this, that Jesus is our everlasting father. And the first one is that he's forever. He's forever our father. John 8 and 5, 58 he said, before Abraham was, I, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. But you just, just stretch your mind around that. Jesus didn't begin. He's the creator of all things that were created. He never had a beginning. He's eternal. And when you talk about the eternal father, you could put the emphasis on the word eternal and realize that unlike kings, human kings, human princes, 
Human, human presidents, they cannot say, I'm everlasting, because they're not. They're going to die, and they will leave you. And Jesus isn't going to leave you. And you can use it in reference number two to protect her. I like Genesis chapter 45, and when Joseph is in power in Egypt, and he's expl- now he's explaining who he is to his brothers, and their mouths are open, they just can't believe what he's saying, but it's him, it's him. One of the things he said was that, I'm, I'm father to Pharaoh. Get the, get the usage. What was he to Pharaoh? Well, at this time, he was a protector of, of Pharaoh, protector of, of Egypt from the famine, and, and, and Pharaoh looked to him for guidance and direction. He was father to Pharaoh. I'm just saying that the Hebrews used it in different ways. And that's, that's how come you've got it here in Isaiah chapter 9. He's an everlasting father. Three ways. Number one, he is forever. He is the protector. And here's the big one. He's the giver of eternal life. I'm confident that that's, that's the meaning of this. He is eternal father. It's as if you and I have gone to the cross. When we obeyed the gospel, we were immersed in water for the forgiveness of our sins, that we walk up to the cross and and he hands us eternal life. Hands us eternal life. And one day I'm going to leave this old world and the judgment day is going to happen, the trumpet's going to blow, and you and I are going to go to the judgment seat of Christ. And there's going to be the the reality that that I've sinned And then my Savior is going to, as it were, say, he has sinned, but here's my blood in payment for that. The word you can attach to that is the word Father. And in him, 1 John chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, in him was life. And the life was the light of the world. Everlasting Father is that he brings me everlasting life. And he's the one that did it. He's the one that, that spent the blood so that it could, it, only, it could only be him. It had to be him. And he did that. And now I have eternity promised to be in heaven because he is the everlasting Father of that eternal life. Number five. He's the Prince of Peace. I would say that that there are different senses in which this is true. I would say there's an ideal sense. I mean, it's the sense that if everybody followed Jesus, the teachings of Jesus Christ, wars would go away and conflicts and families would evaporate because if we all followed what Jesus taught us. I mean, one, one day you're going to go to heaven, Christian. You're going to go to heaven. And when you're there, you're not going to have any sin. First Peter chapter 1 says that, all things that defile, that make life hard, are going to go, go away. There's no tears there. No sin there. No temptation to sin there. If everybody on earth did what everybody's going to do in heaven, we wouldn't have any strife. We'd have peace. And I know that's idealistic because we, we're in a realm where we have choices. And so often the wrong choices are made. And I would say the second one, and I'm just, just the word I put to it, is more of a realistic sense in which Jesus is the Prince of Peace. I mean, the peace in my life, to a large degree, will be dependent on how much I implement what Jesus has taught me. Think about all the passages of Scripture 
that help to bring peace to your life. In Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15, remember, if your brother sins against you, what do you do? Go to him and tell him his sin between you and him alone. Is that good advice? Is that good counsel? I'm telling you right now that I've been around a lot of people. In fact, this past week I was with people where, where this, this verse came into play. And why don't you go and sit down with him personally, face-to-face, and have this conversation? Oh, I don't know. That's, I don't know. That seems it's not going to be easy. You know, I don't know how that would turn out. I don't know what he would say. And it might not turn out well. It might be hard. Yeah, well, it might. But at least you'd know you'd done the right thing, right? And incidentally... In that particular case, it just resolved it. The conversation took a couple of hours, I think. But at the end of it, they were brothers and loved each other and now understood one another. And it was all all right. There's, there's the realistic sense that the degree to which I apply his teachings reflects peace. You know, Matthew seven twelve. whatever you would that men should do to you, do you even so to them? How many people have lived by that and their lives are better, have more peace as a result of that? He's the Prince of Peace. Philippians 2 and verse 3, let nothing be done through strife and vain glory, but I want you to esteem others better than yourself. That's good counsel. In Romans chapter 12, if your enemy hungers, feed him. If he thirsts, give him drink. What's that about? Following Christ. But now the ultimate sense. The, the ultimate sense. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 9, you have the Beatitudes. And, and Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called the sons of God. And, and maybe, maybe we, we do some gymnastics and try to figure that out. But I don't think it's complicated. It has to do with making peace with God. And ultimately what Jesus did was to come to earth so that we could have peace with God. The people who are the sons of God or children of God are the ones who have made peace with God. They are the peacemakers. Here's Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Next slide. There we go. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into his grace in which we stand and we rejoice with the glory of God. John 16 and verse 33. In this world, you're going to have tribulations. You'd be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. I came that you might have peace. I'm going to do one more thing before we wind up the sermon, and that is this uh, peace is that it's so easy for people, I think, who don't know Scripture like you do. It's so easy to think about Jesus as the Prince of Peace, and then we get a misunderstanding that what Jesus intended with his offer of peace was to make us feel good in whatever choices of life we happen to live. I just want you to be happy. I want you to be happy. That's not, that's not what this is about. And Jesus didn't come to cater to our own personal preferences. That's not how it's going to be. And so we go to, to Matthew chapter 4. And I said, this is, this, is the, this is Matthew's reference to our text today. The first five verses of Isaiah 9. So you go to Matthew chapter 4 and verse 12. Listen closely. The fulfillment of Isaiah 9. First five verses. Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison... He departed to Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. Here it is. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. 
The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light is dawned. Now that's, that's Matthew's reference, fulfillment of Isaiah 9. But now the next verse in Isaiah 9 gives you the names of Jesus. The next verse in Matthew 4, where you have the fulfillment, gives you this. But from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. (coughs) Those things are not inconsistent. Reconcile those in your mind. Jesus came ultimately to, to help us have peace with God because of the sin that separated us from God. And that, re- that involves repentance. Now, Jesus, hold on a minute. Do you understand that if you make us repent of our sins, and repentance means change your mind from the, the course you're following and follow a different course, the one that Jesus teaches, you, you, you make us do that, and what's going to happen is you're going to have families bust up because they got, there's going to be conflict. You're going to take away peace. You don't mean to do that, Jesus. You make people follow the rule of law. You make them follow the the way of God. You know that people aren't going to agree about all of that stuff. And what's going to happen is you're going to have a lack of peace. Well, here's here's Matthew chapter 10 and verse 34. Don't think that I came to bring peace on earth. Not in this way. I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be those of his own household. What's that about? It's about repentance. It's about the true peace. The ultimate peace is between God and man. And the only way to have that is to obey and follow God. You've got to repent and live the way that God wants you to live. <coughs> What's that? What does that mean? Does it, mean you, it means you, that, that there's not always going to be peace. And that's not what... Peace on earth, goodwill toward man means, or that his name is Prince of Peace. Jesus is not Joel Olstein. Give me a quote. Let's have that quote. This came from a recent sermon of Joel. I just want to, to make the point as we're closing that Jesus isn't Joel. Uh, Jesus doesn't approve Joel Olstein. No more excuses. God, this is, this is Joel in a, in a lesson that was, I think, loosely entitled, Discover the Champion in You. And this was a synopsis of that sermon. Discover the champion in you. No more excuses. God wants to do a new thing in your life. He wants to bring you into a new level of your destiny. But are you letting excuses hold you back? Redeem the time. You're a person of destiny. God is counting on you to make a difference in this world and fulfill your purpose. With this gift of life comes a responsibility to develop your talents, pursue your dreams, become what God has created you to be. It's your due season right now. There are blessings that have your name on them. A promotion, healing, vindication, restored relationships, and so much more. God's already destined them to be yours. So Isaiah 57 and verse 20 says, The wicked are like the troubled sea. When it casts up mire and dirt, cannot rest. It's just like, like the people that say peace, peace, when there is no peace. What Jesus came to offer as the Prince of Peace is wonderful. It will result many times in having peace between people, relationships. Not always. Because ultimately it has to do with following the will of God. It is directly tethered to following the will of God. And so here it is. 
when you conclude Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 7, and that government that's on the, the shoulders of this one, it is the church. And you can read about the everlasting kingdom. In Luke chapter 13 and verse 3, it's about repentance. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And there, ah, there's the ultimate peace to know that I'm right with God. And Jesus came to offer us that. So when you eat the Lord's Supper, or you should do it other times too, but I want to challenge you when you eat the Lord's Supper to add this to the mental process that you go through. And think about it. What's his name? Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and forevermore, He will be the Prince of Peace. I'm so glad you're here. Somebody here who wants to obey the gospel, now is a wonderful time to do that. And if you want to study about it, if you'd like to talk more, just come see me after this is over and we'll sit down and we'll talk, talk about the scriptures together. If you need the prayers of the church, now is a wonderful time for that. and We'd be so happy to do that with you. We're going to sing a song of encouragement. If you'd like to respond, come as we stand and sing. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word, brought to us by Glenn Colley. If you have comments or questions, Glenn can be reached by email at colley at westhuntsville.org.